HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I'll try to demystify this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Masahiro Takeda, who is the vice president of the sake importer, Wine of Japan. Masahiro is a former lawyer, and he has been passionately promoting Japanese sake since 2008. He currently oversees 250 brands of Japanese sake, shochu and beer, distributed in over 30 states. And the total export of Japanese sake to the States uh, in 2015 was only $45 million, which is not a lot compared to other beverages, but American sake sales have grown by 8% annually since 1994. And more importantly, we drink more premium sake than ever because sake importers like Masahiro are working so hard to bring the best sake to the U.S. But you almost never got to get to know stories of craftsmen or women behind your favorite sake. So today, we'll focus on three unique sake breweries that Masahiro closely works with. Um, but quickly before we start, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher as podcast. Please go to iTunes and, and or Stitcher and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. We really appreciate your feedback. 
Also, if you have ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japaneseatheritageradionetwork.org or kikokatema.com. And as you may know, um, I already、um, introduced a couple of different topics, and thanks to the request from our audience. So, thank you so much. And now, let's start our conversation with Masahiro Takeda. Hello, Masahiro. Welcome to Japanese. Hi, thanks for having me. So,、um, so first of all,、uh, you are Japanese American. And、uh, how did you grow up? And、uh, were you surrounded by Japanese culture?、Uh, I grew up in New Jersey,、um, in a small town without very many Japanese. Okay. So, very like only your parents' exposure to Japanese culture? Mainly concentrated in the household, yes.、Mm, okay. And、uh, you used to be a lawyer, so why did you become a lawyer? Well, I'm currently still、oh, I'm yeah. a lawyer. Right, right.、Um, yeah, I'm sorry,、oh. sorry. But I was <laughs> so, so dominated by you, you might as well. Sake ambassador in a way. Sorry.、Um, well, I'm currently still practicing, however, in house,、mm, um, mainly focused in the trade and importation of beverage alcohol. Right. From Japan and elsewhere.、Mm. Oh, actually, the wine of, uh, uh, wine of Japan is a part of、uh, the Sama Trading Company? Or what is the... It's the sister company that、mm-hmm. handles the distribution of beverage alcohol. Okay, so you take care of both Sama and the wine of Japan's? Both companies are under the same、right. kind of control, yes. Right, okay. And uh, so, uh, could you tell us how you get into, got into the, the, world, the world of sake? Well, I. <laughs> It's not as、uh, interesting other than the,、um, the fact that I think my family decided that they were tired of using outside counsel and it was time for, quote, our son, the lawyer, to come home and、uh, <laughs>、okay. participate or at least contribute to the family business.、Mm. Okay. So you're happy to do that? Oh, absolutely. Right.、Um, and uh, what is uh, Wine of Japan and what is your responsibility at the company?、So- Wine of Japan is a import and, or an importer and a distributor of Japanese beverage alcohol.、Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that role has expanded slightly to also being an exporter from the Japan side.、Mm. Um, my role is purely on the, well, the in house counsel side as well as the brand development side、mm-hmm. and all of the legal aspects、um, in. Engaging those brands and bringing those brands available、mm-hmm. to the US market. Right. But it sounds like,、uh, well, what do you do is eventually take care of all the aspects of the business. Hopefully. Right. Okay. <laughs>、um, so、uh, you have very close relationships with the authentic as well as innovative sake producers in Japan. So, what is your philosophy of selecting sake breweries that you work with? I think it's mainly a connection that we need to have with. The brewery and what they're trying to do.、Mm-hmm. Um, as terrible as it sounds, anyone can make great sake if they applied the right techniques and invested the right amounts into their infrastructure. However, a lot of those products don't necessarily have a soul, right? They're,、mm-hmm. they're engaged in trying to fill a particular gap in the market,、uh, perhaps solely for revenue generating. Right.、Um, But at least since I, was, I became involved in selecting the breweries and selecting the items,、uh, what's been more important, at least for us, has been the connection we have with the producer、mm. and what they're trying to achieve, as、right. opposed to what does the US market want? What does the US market need? We'll make something for that.、Mm. Um, I don't think that those stories are as 
uh, compelling. Um, and without the compelling story behind the sake, mm. we don't necessarily think that there's a lot of uh, long-term possibilities for right. those brands. Right. And also, I think... Um, on the commercial uh, situation like restaurants or retail stores, you need stories. Yep, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's kind of one of those you know it when you see it type moments, and I think that works both ways. Uh, perhaps even in the lack of a story, uh, as opposed to when it's there is a compelling story there that perhaps the audience will mm. latch on to or the consumer is going to engage with. Right. Yeah, even I have to say personally that there's a story, then I feel like telling that story to other people and to share that joy. Because eventually it's a, such a personal drink, and the taste is very personal, subjective, depending on the day or your feeling. So I think story really means a lot. So uh, speaking of the story, so as I said at the beginning of the show, uh, it's rare to hear about stories beyond sake labels in this country. So uh, I'd like you to tell us undiscovered stories of those fascinating sake producers that you work with. So first of all, um, tell us about Nida Honke of Kushima Prefecture, whose brand is called Kimpo Shizo. And first of all, uh, what is the history of Nida Honke? Well, Nida Honke is uh, a brewery based in Fukushima Prefecture. Um, they were founded in early 1700s, and they're about in their 18th generation. Mm, well, 300 years. <laughs> right. Okay. And uh, so what is the philosophy of Nida Honke? Uh, this, is, this place is just, frankly, one of the most amazing producers we've been able to locate in Japan. Mm. Um, they are kind of a pioneer in the natural sake production movement. Um, before all of this fervor for organic and farm-to-table, mm. um, this trend, uh, which probably can, can be traced at least here in the U.S. a couple decades, mm. um, this producer's been producing as sustainably or naturally since 1967. <laughs> wow, it's almost 50 years. And, uh, yeah, they, they're totally um, hardcore, sustainable, and farming-minded people ahead of everybody else. Right? So um, in what, what kind of what they do to be so sustainable? Well, I, they only produce sake using self-cultivated rice. Mm -hmm. um, they have about 600 and so odd acres along uh, the valley, um, just about 30 minutes south, southwest of uh, Koryama. Mm. Um, the mentality or the philosophy for rice cultivation is not using pesticides and not using chemical fertilizers. Mm. So they've had to invent or create and innovate new ways to deal with things like pests and pest control mm. uh, in order to produce a sustainable yield of, of rice, let alone enough rice to make sake with. Mm. Right. And then uh, to utilize, I heard, a tadpole, shrimp, and frogs to combat rice-affecting pests. Absolutely. That's, <laughs> That's their pest control, right? It's natural pest control. Right. Right. And uh, I also heard the brewery buildings uh, painted with persimmon juice to repel pests. Absolutely. Yeah, the, every, <laughs> the whole place looks like it's been stained um, mm -hmm. because all of the wood is treated with this, this kind of uh, brownish juice mm. um, and you, it has a particularly uh, unique 
uh, aromatic property to it as well. But the goal, or at least the purpose of it, is to repel Mm. uh, pests that can affect things like their rice and and, uh, their sake production. Right. Yeah, actually, I went to the website, and it was in Japanese, but uh, they want to make sake that's good for your body, not like just a joy for your palate, and it contributes to your health. So um, it's amazing. That's why they grow and rice and uh, responsible uh, rice and also um, the uh, the water I, I heard it they, they have their own mountain yeah the the property that they own or that they operate from uh, is about 650 acres of mountain and paddy and valley mm. uh, they have two springs Mm-hmm. that generate the water that they use for everything uh, <laughs> at the brewery, including sake production. Mm. Um, the water quality of, of both mm. is going to determine what the blend is going to look like, right? So they, depending on the series of sake that they produce, they may use more of the mountain spring as opposed to the, the southern spring. Right. Um, this particular producer really starts to look at the hardness qualities as well as the alkalinity qualities of the two different springs that they mm. they possess um, and as a result that is going to make its way into the sake and develop textures mm. and, and unique kind of profiles right oh interesting so like a soft water and hard water yes difference. interesting so depending on the label you can taste both different kind of style I think for the most part it's a blend of both but mm-hmm. the difference is the proportions okay so different levels of uh, minority right interesting okay and uh, so I, I think uh, there's even trying more to be even more sustainable that's correct um, actually just as background uh, most breweries only operate during brewery season mm. so the other outside of brewing season the employees go off and help engage in sales or perhaps just take the time off right. um, at Nida they as soon as sake production is over or complete the employees of the brewery switch gears and farm rice wow. so it's a year long operation right and they know what they're making sake with because rice is another huge product absolutely um, it's a purely kind of dirt to bottle mm. situation. Right. <laughs> Dirt <to> bottle. <laughs> that is true. Right. That's interesting. Wow. I've never heard of it, this kind of practice. I, you know, we we found three breweries in Japan that are fully engaged in this all-natural production. Mm. Um, luckily, we, we have the uh, relationships with two of them to bring their products to the U.S. Right. Wow. It's amazing. Okay. And uh, so, the, since Nidahoke is located in Fukushima, so uh, we need to talk about the fear for nuclear contamination. So, what is the reaction of consumers in Japan to Fukushima produced sake? I mean, to Nidahoke sake. Well, actually, when I, I got to visit Nidahoke a few years ago, uh, one of the conversations we had with the family that runs that brewery um, is that at least after the disaster, um, or shortly thereafter, um, people started to travel back to Fukushima or the Tohoku region in order to try to help support the local economies. Mm. Um, unfortunately, outwardly, uh, 
these visitors would spend money and purchase goods and put on a good face. But mm-hmm. um, the reality was the local police departments would always call the producers to say, hey, your, your goods are scattered all over the local park in front of the train station, or oh. the garbage cans would be filled to the brim with all of this untouched product. Oh. Um, and essentially, although these consumers would like to outwardly support, there was a little bit of hesitation in terms of mm. uh, ingesting these goods. Um, thankfully, a lot of that has subsided, um, and there's a lot more tourism in the area and there's a lot of uh, kind of prefectural outreach mm. um, there's a vigilant inspection process that the prefecture has engaged in um, and a lot of that outreach is done online and publishing data and uh, essentially reassuring not only the local consumers and the domestic consumers in Japan but also mm. outward Um, outside and to the rest of the world. Um, Nidahonke in itself also possesses two Geiger counters and they inspect everything coming in Mm. um, as well as everything that they produce. Um, You know, they produce the sake and they they use recycled bottles and and the boxes come from somewhere else. So all of these things need to be tested Mm. um, and they compile that data pretty meticulously as well. Mm. Um, And there's several layers of insurance and inspection and vigilance at the prefectural, the local government level, and in the brewery. Mm. And then again, once things get transported out to ports and so forth. Right. Okay. So the numbers are safe. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, the the brewery itself is located 80 80 kilometers Mm. south, southwest of the site. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you think of how the country is situated, uh, Koryama and Nidahonke is is south-southwest of where the disaster site was along the coast. Mm. Um, Air currents travel from west to east, and therefore there'd be little to no exposure in terms of uh, falling particles. Mm. Um, Nothing in the data compiled by the brewery, the city, the district, or the prefecture indicates any kind of elevated risk. Mm. Um, And at least the prefecture's been very outward about publishing data about their measurements vis-a-vis measurements in other major cities Mm. uh, of naturally occurring radioactivity. Um, And the measurement data actually indicates the levels of radioactivity are lower than that measured in Mm. major cities. Interesting. So awareness. Probably New York City is safer than any other cities because we are aware of risks. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Right. But I'm curious, so, so um, I really want to have one of their labels, one or two. What kind of sake would you recommend to try? From uh, they produce two labels that are available in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is called Odayaka. Okay. Uh, they're all labeled under the, the Kimpo uh, brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Odayaka is more their food-friendly, um, more mild, mellow, aromatic sake. Mm-hmm. So Odayaka uh, means mellow and uh, serene, maybe some kind of... Right. Okay. And then the other label What would kind be, of style? Is it a daiginjo? Or? Uh, the one available in the U.S. is a jumaginjo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one, which is also kimpo, but under a different series called shizenshu. Mm. No, natural uh, sake. Natural sake. Mm. Uh, I'm is, curious about that. Is a um, Yamahai junmai 
but it's also a subcategory called kan atsudai, meaning a junmai sake brewed for the intention of heating. Oh, interesting. So, technically, what's the... How how does it change technically to be ready to be heated? So strong, um, it's not. It's that stronger flavor. I think it's a more of a deeper, fuller dimension. Um, oh. When you when you taste shizenshu kan atsurai yamahai junmai, it's this really deep and nutty mm. kind of. Um, there's just so much in terms of layers and okay. flavor. Um, and when you heat it, and we're not talking, you know, microwave, um, <laughs> you know, full blast with uh, the steam rising up from it. But we're, we're talking, you know, nudukan, like mm-hmm. mid, mid-grade, just warmer than, than body temp levels. Mm. Uh, and it creates or it releases a lot of the kind of more delicate and elegant aromatics as well as mm. kind of the deeper flavor profiles that you wouldn't find in a chilled sake. Right. Wow. I'm super curious about that. Okay, I have to check it out. Like uh, your website, right? Yes. Wineofjapan.com? Yes. Okay, so we'll, we'll start talk about that uh, information later. So, okay, so let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, uh, we'll talk about more unique and fascinating sake breweries. So please stay with us. Red Mill is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network and a big supporter of organic farmers. Ray and Tom Williams are two farmers who have worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray shares what their relationship with Bob's Red Mill means to them. We thought that for over the long term, we thought it would make sense, better sense for the soil. Also, we thought that uh, it was something that would improve the quality of the food su- uh, supply. We're lucky in that we're working with Bob's Red Mill. We're part of a um, regional food network. Uh, with Bob is a fundamental uh, relationship and cornerstone to that. We also work with other best-of-class people in the Northwest, and we're thankful for the long-term relationship that's brought uh, good things to the soil and good things to our long-term farm economic plans. We appreciate his attitude toward absolutely high standard for the benefit of his customers. We take pride in meeting those standards. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Masahiro Takeda, who is a former lawyer, oh no, sorry, lawyer, 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 active lawyer, and uh, vice president of sake importer, Wine of Japan. He currently oversees 250 brands of Japanese sake shochu beer and distributed over 30 over 30 states. So we've been talking about interesting sake breweries. So next, can you tell us about Shimazaki, uh, Shuzo, Tochigi, 
、uh, whose plan is Omi nomads or nomadic mer- merchants.、Um, and these merchants, or this merchant, this particular merchant family,、uh, purchased a 200 year old brewery. So it's actually a longer existing brewery, but、uh, shorter in terms of its、mm. current situation、right. or、right. their current brand. So new, blo-、uh, new blood and passion、uh, into the new, new brewery.、Mm. Okay. So、uh, what is about, special about this?、Uh, So, Shimazaki Shuzo is、um, located in Karasuyama,、mm-hmm. uh, which is in, just outside of Utsunomiya in Tochigi Prefecture. Right, which is、uh, in the same region as Tokyo, Kanto to- region. Right. I think it's, it, it, it's still considered kind of a commuter city as well. It's、mm. about 40 minutes to an hour outside of Tokyo、right. Center.、Um, so, it's a still a relatively mountainous area. Uh, with a lot of valleys and rivers and, and so forth.、Mm-hmm. Um, during the war,、uh, some of these mountains were tunneled out for building tanks and weaponry in order to support、mm-hmm. the war effort.、Right. Um, wow, Shimazaki Shuzo is, is located right outside of one of these mountains,、um, and once the tunnel.、Uh, Or the cave system that was dug out in order to support the war effort was declassified. Shimazaki Shizo was able to、mm. acquire that space or use of that space in order to age sake.、Mm. It must、um, be a huge space, right? To be able like, to build the tanks. And <laughs> it's like 800 meters of a bunch of different tunnels underneath the cave system、wow. um, or underneath the mountain system. And, and I think they've been, it's been about close to 50 years, 40 to 50 years that they've been aging sake there. Wow. <laughs> the irony there, too, though, is that the cave, that particular cave,、uh, although classified and so on and so forth, was、um, completed after the war's end.、Mm. So it was never actually used in the war effort,、um, but ultimately had to be classified and so forth. Right. Very hidden forest area. And,、mm. um, so the history is not tainted by the war. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was intended to be, but、right. uh, ultimately <laughs> they、right. finished digging out the cave system、mm. after the war had closed. Right, okay. So, okay. and what's the temperature in、uh, the cave? There's、um, probably about a 20 to 25 degree differential from outside、mm. to inside. Okay.、Um, the entrance to the cave system is, is about. Don't quote me here, but、uh, I remember it to be about 50 feet. Okay. And it's a, it's a narrow walkway, and then it opens up into this,、mm. this big area.、Um, part of that walkway was constructed by Shimazaki Shizo in order to keep the temperature and、right. humidity kind of、uh, consistent.、Um, when I had visited a few years ago in the fall, it was relatively humid and hot outside,、mm. uh, but once you Walk in, it becomes very, very cold and humid and damp.、Mm, right. So it's about,、um, according to the website, they have like 10 degrees in centigrade. That means 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which、mm-hmm. is perfect cellar temperature、yep. for sake and any like wine. So, okay. But it's, it's interesting that they, 
the new owners really wanted to have that system because. Well, you know, the, the marketing side of this as well, we can age or temper sake in a mm. unique way. Right. Um, I think the reality, uh, and this, this story came out off the record, hopefully we're not exposing too much. Um, <laughs> It originally, or their their intent to age in the cave was because they were outgrowing their own warehouse. Mm. And so the family had also helped in the digging effort, so they knew that the cave existed. Mm. Um, and once it became available, or once it got essentially declassified and available as for other uses, is mm. when they said, well, we're outgrowing our warehouse, why don't we... Uh, <laughs> utilize this cave and we can age sake there mm. so that caused the the um, the idea or that was the impetus to them originally mm. storing sake in a cave right well that's really um, brings to interesting point that we tend to think sake has to be drunk quickly like in a year but there are certain aged sake famously koshu but some brewers like that are really interested in they, they have koshu that dates back to the early 70s. Mm. Um, and this particular brewery now, all of their labels now are more blends of various koshus, right? Mm. Um, in order to be labeled as koshu, it's, it's got to spend a minimum of three years right. uh, in some kind of aging mm-hmm. situation. And that can be anywhere from um, ambient temperature bottle aging, tank aging, um, and it can be in really, really cold temp as well, which actually slows the aging process. Mm. Um, the koshu element, or the, the labeling of koshu, is, is strictly a measurement of time, mm. not of the conditions. Okay. I have a koshu I made myself in my fridge without any intention. <laughs> I just left it for three years <laughs> trying to find a time to drink it. Anyway, so, uh, but what is the benefit of aging is like in the cave um, or, you know, in general, just aging that long? What is the effect on the taste of sake? I think um, more than anything, it's the consistency of the environment leads to a more controllable aging process. Mm. Um, the particular sakes from here are unlike anything that we've, we've been able to find elsewhere mm. uh they aged very very gracefully um they use a lot of the older koshus to reblend some of the newer items mm. to give them a little more depth um there's a certain earthiness there's a certain taste profile that you can derive from that kind of that level of humidity and that kind of mm. um consistency right okay so um i heard that uh, um well they have a. Uh, like available sake. Do you do you carry the koshu here? Like how old? Uh, we carry two uh, labels from Shimazaki Shizu. We have one coming later on this year as well. Um, and both are relatively new sakes. They're mm-hmm. relatively fresh sakes that have been blended with koshus from that cave. Oh, oh, interesting. Are you talking about something like uh, suela of sherry, like the blending and maintaining the consistent taste, or? Well, it's. I guess it's a, it's a well, sake brewers tend to blend mm-hmm. um, between batches right. that they currently make. Um, there have been 
there's quite a few that also blend from year to year as well. Mm, um, okay. Wow. And in this case, when you have a library of, of koshus right. and sakes that you've been aging for so long. Mm. Um, but I didn't know that this is such a common practice to age, uh, to blend the different year sake. I really didn't know that. That's interesting. So by doing that, like uh, often people say koshu tend to have like nutty flavor or something very umami oriented. So you can just balance. Absolutely. There's when you have, I guess, you know, that many uh, and that many years to refer to, you mm. can essentially drive the blend in any direction that you want right. Right? because you have so many different um, examples or so many different sakes and genshus that you can incorporate to create mm. a particular taste profile. Right. Um, so in that sense, Shimazaki Shuzo is kind of a pioneer in the blending sense. Mm. Um, a lot of their sakes uh, or all of their labels in one way or another incorporate some of the cave-age sake, mm. whether it's a short-term or a longer koshu. Um, and they typically only pasteurize once in mm. order to kind of maintain a lot of those flavors uh, without, you know, diminishing them or reducing them in any way. Mm, interesting. Okay, and I heard that uh, you can visit uh, the cave. Absolutely. I think it's free, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you end up uh, buying a lot of sake, probably. <laughs> I, I think that's the, the intent, right? Um, and they, they have a very... They'll sell you a lot of that aged sake and you can actually buy sake to store there oh okay oh really so that's gonna be your seller too (laughs) that's so cool okay all right so um yeah um i'm gonna put all those uh, links to these uh, different breweries on the show page so let's move on to the next one so um let's talk about hayashi honten of gifu prefecture which uh, whose brand is uh, brands are Eiichi and Hyakujuro. So I heard that the CEO and the Toji uh, is a powerful woman. Who is she? Uh, well, Hayashi Honten is, uh, or was, maybe not as much now, but was a very small brewery mm-hmm. um, back when we first started working with them. Um, they've since grown to three times of their size, the original size from when we first started working with them. Wow. Um, I think it was, they were barely producing 500 koku, and now they're close to 2,000. Mm, so when was it you started working with them? Probably less than three years ago, oh, four wow. years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wow, amazing. And uh, I heard that she used to work at uh, Kirin Beer, which is one of the biggest beer companies. Absolutely. Well, yeah, she was a powerful force there, uh, allegedly, and now she's a powerful force in the sake world as well. Mm. Um, Because she went to uh, Tokyo uh, Agriculture University, which is really the university if you're in the agriculture business. Or for for sake producing. Right. Um, Yeah, Hayashi-san is is just... uh, is a totally different force, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> unlike any other that we've seen in the in the in the sake world. I think. I mean, we we represent over a hundred producers, and and by there's no one in that collection of producers that has the just the edge and the um, the drive that Hayashi-san has. Wow. Um, so I mean, it, it's I can't even begin to surmise. Um, how incredible this person is. Um, hers is kind of one of these inspiring stories, right? Single mother, mm-hmm. single full-time employee, CEO of a very male-dominated sake brewing world. Right. Um, 
I think when we, you know, she left her, she left Kieran Beer to kind of take over the reins of the fledgling family business due to uh, some health concerns for her mm. parents. So she's the fifth generation? I think that's correct. Yeah. Right. So she, she knew she was going to succeed the family business? I don't know that it, she knew it was going to come so soon. Oh, okay. Um, but I think um, it, it was more of a, I'm not sure if there's a, a family history of illness or, or, or what have you, but mm-hmm. ultimately um, I believe it was her return was accelerated. Right. I think her father got sick or something like that, right? Right. Okay. But how did you start working with her? With her? Um, ironically, she found us. Okay. <laughs> um, a client of ours, a, a relatively big distributor uh, in the South, had gone on a trip to Japan and by chance met with her. Mm. Uh, and then they in turn introduced her to us. And um, that started the process. Wow. So... And then I'm, I'm sure that, like you said, she was very so. Her company was very small at the beginning, mm-hmm. and and then how did were you convinced to work with her? Well, I mean, there was certainly some hesitation because uh, producers of that size, um, you know, unfortunately sometimes don't last very long, mm. and as a result, um, there's going to be some hesitation in order in the supply chain and whether our efforts to help develop the brand image in the, the U.S. market mm. um, are going to be long-lasting or not. Um, so in her case, um, in order to convince us to take on the brand, she came and presented the, the concept, which was to remove the English from the label, mm. uh, to create a label that was a purely visual, iconic uh, representation of a kabuki mask mm-hmm. and then to make sure that all of the extensions of that brand were of the same mask just with a different color component or a pattern variation mm-hmm. um, we were a little bit hesitant about how that would be received in the sake world or at least in the sake market in the US um, we, we recognized that it was a really progressive idea but we didn't know if it would be readily accepted mm-hmm. um, so she came she pre-sold um, she convinced us to buy the first lot as a result of her own sales wow. uh, and working in the market mm. um, and actually pre-sold more than we were, we had anticipated ordering in the first lot anyway. Mm. Um, and ever since, it's been a, um, a really valuable and, and fruitful partnership. Okay. Yeah, I just found that uh, she... Um uh, it's on their website. So she believes that the role of Japanese sake is to link people through the food and beverage and uh, to support communication um, between people. So that's labels. No language, but uh, universal language. But uh, yeah, absolutely. The, um, the brand, of it's called 110, uh, as a romanization, it's the transition or we're translating a word that sounds like a number in Japanese into a number mm. so it's, it's kind of a few jumps right and f- so from hyakujuro we've taken the hyakuju which is 110 mm-hmm. and taken the romanization out and made it purely a number so the okay. brand is called 110 mm. um, and that's all on the back and ultimately on the front label is this kind of 
very aggressive looking kabuki mask. Mm. Um, and each of the different grades of sake are different variations of that mask or different backgrounds or color co uh, combinations of that mask. Right. So okay. it's one singular series. Mm. Sounds like uh, she's really formal-minded, probably trained at a major corporation of Japan about marketing too. But um, I just also found that, uh, this according to her, uh, she was born at the sake brewery and uh, the, the album uh, like graduation photo album uh, at her um, kindergarten, she said, I will be a sake producer. So that was uh, the passion that she's got. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, okay, so, and also it's interesting that we tend to think sake industry is dominated by male, but she's female. Mm -hmm. And actually, um, that was one of the things we, we, we and several of her other distributors, both in Japan, and elsewhere, um, we're very enamored with her sales capability. Mm. But in order to keep her brewery growing or sustainable, um, there was a little bit of a push to say, perhaps you need to also engage in the production side. Mm. And over the last two or three brewing cycles, I think she's gotten more and more involved in the direction of producing the sake and then ultimately as the, the toji. Mm. Right. Okay. So, wow, that's amazing. And do you, are you aware you see more female uh, sake uh, CEOs or toji? I think we're seeing more media attention towards mm. those particular producers. And there's, there's probably almost a dozen at this point, mm. um, but very few in relation to their counterparts. Mm. Um, right. Well, it's, a, it's kind of a... Good and bad because uh, sake brewers, uh, number of the brewers are declining, but then people have to find, you know, the, all the brewers have to find somebody to succeed. So there's no choice, men or women, <laughs> who's available, and turn out to be. I think, um, yeah, I am aware of uh, some of the female-led uh, sake producers. They, they are really forced to review their situation because they have to stand up and then strong, but. Um, in the end, they're recognized because of the uniqueness of female, um, I don't know, the flavor preference or some other things too. So it's an interesting expansion of the scope of sake flavors, maybe. So, um, but speaking of the number of the sake brewers are declining, as I said, over the past decades, from over 3,000 3, after World War II to less than half of it now. So. Um, but at the same time, as, as I said, uh, the, no, this is something new. I hear that the number started to increase again. So why is that? Okay, well, I think um, there's been a market growth in the domestic side of premium. Mm. Um, a lot of this mass-produced sake has been declining for, for decades. Um, and so when the transition happened between a market push towards the premium segment mm. um, we've seen some reactivation of dormant sake breweries we've had we've actually seen some collapses as well um, mm. breweries that were mainly focused on producing middle market or semi mass market right. sake uh, couldn't make the transition as quickly um, but we're seeing reactivation and we're actually seeing the birth of new sake breweries mm. um, we actually personally um, have engaged with a, a new producer that was 
that was just founded 12 years ago mm. um, in, in Japan. Right. So it's, it's almost like、uh, young people started to decide to do something, their own thing? How? Well, in this case, and I can't, we haven't signed the contract yet, so it's, it's a little difficult to disclose too much. <laughs> But、uh, this particular brewery was founded by、uh, a cooperative of rice producers、mm. who were producing very high quality consumption rice. Um, but wanted to be able to utilize some of the rice that they wouldn't be able to market as consumption rice, but、mm. is wholly suitable for sake production. Oh, interesting. Wow, so new flavors, probably.、Mm, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> right, so it's great that you're willing to work with those new people because it's more exciting. So, well, good luck. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So,、um, where can we buy sake from、uh, those fascinating breweries that we talked about today?、Um, as far as Nida Honke and Hayashi Honten's sakes are relatively widely available throughout Manhattan,、mm-hmm. um, our clients in the retail side、uh, can generally have access to them.、Um, even the sake specialty stores will have、okay. one or two labels of them. Um, Shimazaki Shuzo's sakes, Azumarikishi, are a little bit more min- limited.、Mm. Um, the focus for that brand is, is mainly on premise or in restaurants.、Mm. Um, so I think the, off the top of my head, the Jumai Ginjo is available at places like Neta and i z a k a i r i k i Right. And、uh, can we buy,、uh, buy them at,、uh, on your website? Wine of Japan?、Uh, no, we don't do any direct、oh, contact.、Okay. As a wholesaler and distributor, we're prohibited from any direct、oh, consumer right, right. contact. So. so you can just only、um, maybe email you, ask where you can find it?、Uh, we can direct you to a retailer、right. that can supply most of the markets that we distribute to. Okay, so it's wineofjapan.com, and I hope、uh, our listeners can support them. So, and I will also add、uh, links to the three breweries、uh, to the show page as well. So, well, thank you for joining us today, Masahiro. Thank you for having me. Okay, so listeners,、um, if you'd like to know more about、um, the Japan Needs, please go to our website.、Um, it's heritageradionetwork.org and Japan Needs. And、uh, Japan Needs is、uh, live at 3 p.m. on Mondays, always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher Podcast. And、uh, today's show was.、Uh, Made possible at、uh, Bob's Mill. And our、uh, engineer is David Stasiore. And、uh, thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.